Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Welcome back, everyone. This week is the 100th anniversary of Fire Prevention Week, which was created by the National Fire Protection Association and the nation's longest-running public health observance on record. The NFPA is the leading information and knowledge resource on fire, electrical, and related hazards. Their initiatives, from codes and standards to Sparky the Fire Dog, have greatly reduced the public's fire risk, injuries, and losses in the U.S. for more than a century. Here today to help us learn more about fire prevention and preparedness is NFPA's technical services engineer, Brian O'Connor. Brian develops education and training for building and life safety engineering products. In this episode, Brian reveals what organizations can learn from 100 years of fire prevention research and practices. Let's listen in. Brian, can you give us a high-level overview of the NFPA and the great work that you all do over there? So the NFPA, or the National Fire Protection Association, but we often go by our acronym, we were founded in 1896, so we just celebrated our 125th anniversary. We're trying to eliminate death, injury, and property and economic loss due to fire, electrical, and related hazards. But there's not going to be one solution to that. So NFPA approaches this from several different angles. And those are our different departments that we have within NFPA as well. So first and foremost are our codes and standards. Most people in the fire and electrical world will know NFPA as a standards development organization. And that's, that's what we do. We have produced more than 300 codes and standards worldwide with the help of our over 8,000 expert volunteers who form the committees and write these codes and standards. We produce codes and standards in several different categories. So we have fire protection systems, such as you know, your sprinkler systems, fire hydrants, fire alarms. We have life safety requirements. So basically how to design a building so that everyone can get out safely in the event of emergency. Electrical safety is another big thing. We, have, we produce the National Electrical Code, which is adopted in all 50 states. So everyone uses this to make sure that houses, buildings, everything is wired correctly and there's no electrical shock or electrical fire hazards out there. Uh, we also produce things for first responders, such as you know, firefighter ensembles, their vehicles and tactics and things like that. And then finally, we have codes and standards that have to deal with industrial and chemical safety. Let's think about things like dust explosions or storage of hazardous materials and stuff like that. So outside of our codes and standards, we also have public education. It's important to educate the public about fire and electrical safety. Just because we have buildings being built safe, we wanna make sure that the public is also part of this information and knowledge. So we have Fire Prevention Week, which I think we'll get into in a little bit. We also have Spark and Fire Dog, which is NFPA's mascot and also a helpful tool in teaching fire and life safety. Other than that, we have outreach and advocacy. So we want to advocate for things like fire sprinklers and firewise communities, which are communities that are going to be a little bit more wildfire resilient. So trying to teach that. I know wildfires have been a huge thing in the, the recent few years with all the droughts going on. We also do training. So NFPA has in-person online training. We do certifications and things like that. Uh, we also have a research arm. So we research and do statistical reports and studies for all aspects of our nation's fire problems. We have historical fire investigations, so looking into those, as well as our Fire Protection Research Foundation. This conducts research to support the development of our codes and standards. So if someone has a question as they're developing these codes and standards, 
they can go to this resource and we'll conduct experiments for them. We also have our publications. So NFPA has our journal. We have our own podcast and we produce lots of blogs and other content. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I did not know you guys did so much. And one thing I want to ask you more about is those codes and standards. I mean, with 125 years under your belt, you've probably gotten really good at this. But can you help our audience understand what goes into that process of developing all the NFPA's codes and standards? NFPA is really good at developing codes and standards because that's what we were founded on. A bunch of insurance companies got together in Boston area, actually, so which is where we are located still. And they said, we need some comprehensive document that we all agree on in order to install sprinkler systems. People were installing these differently throughout the United States, and they weren't really protecting the same way everywhere. That's a little bit just a, of history there. There are a lot of codes and standards that NFPA produces on various topics. We form committees made out of expert volunteers to write our codes and standards, while NFPA employees themselves run the actual meetings. So NFPA classifies their committee members to make sure that there's adequate representation on each committee. So the different classifications are manufacturers, we have users, people who are actually gonna use those codes and standards, installers, you know, think of an installer of a sprinkler system, the labor, so people who actually do the labor for a lot of these, we have research, enforcing authority, insurance, consumers, and then special experts. So NFPA has a rule that no more than one third of our committee can be made out of any one of these classifications. This ensures that there's consensus of multiple groups on whether or not changes should be made. Oftentimes, people have to vote in the majority. So if you look at percentages, all right, so you need at least two or three of those groups to agree on a change in order for it to happen. But most of the time, we're a little bit more evenly balanced. So we'll have a lot of these different groups need to come to an agreement to make sure that these codes and standards are things that everyone can live with. If just the manufacturers are writing these, they're going to write them completely differently than if just the enforcing authority wrote them, right? So we want everyone present at that table. I think that's something unique about the NFPA codes and standards development process that provides this. Yeah, that's fantastic to think about that. You know, all day long, engineers could be thinking, hey, this is how we need to do it. And then the installer says, uh, did you think about this? <laughs> nope. <laughs> that's what. That's really fantastic. Well, this week, I know, marks the 100th year of Fire Prevention Week. What's the origin story on that? So Fire Prevention Week is observed each year during the week of October 9th in commemoration of the Great Chicago Fire, which began on October 8th of 1871. This is something we really can't fathom today because of the leaps and bounds we've made in the area of fire and life safety. Cities just don't burn down like they used to. Think of Rome, Chicago, London. These all were cities that had great fires. We are very fortunate today that regulations have progressed in the way they do to build cities in a way that they're a little bit more fire safe. Like looking at Chicago, back in the day, it had wooden buildings, but it also had wooden sidewalks and sawdust used to help make those roads. You know, the roads got too muddy. Let's put some sawdust in, try to dry that out. But of course, this wasn't very good for fire safety. These fires really helped move the United States in the right direction in terms of fire safety practices. It's unfortunate though, that these events did have to happen in order for that to, to move. Yeah, that's not uncommon. Sometimes nothing happens until something really bad happens, and then it causes people to make changes. Now, I know that many of your Fire Prevention Week efforts are focused on residential fire prevention. So what can organizations take away from it? For businesses that have employees working remotely, we really do need to encourage them to have adequate safety measures in place at home. This includes making sure that you have the needed smoke alarm protection, 
which is at least one smoke alarm on every level of the home in each bedroom and near all sleeping areas. And also make sure that they're working properly. Smoke alarms should be tested monthly. Batteries should be changed when the alarm chirps. This is a signal that the batteries are running low. And in addition, everyone in the household should develop and practice a home escape plan that they know what to do in the event of a fire and can use the time provided by the smoke alarms to get out safely. And what common mistakes or pitfalls, perhaps, do you see organizations make in their fire prevention and safety efforts? Some of the most common ones have to do with maintenance, whether that is maintaining your property, your fire protection systems, or just general housekeeping. For example, blocking the fire lane is not good. You know, firefighters need to be able to access the building. Overgrown shrubbery, blocking access for firefighters can also be a hindrance if they're trying to connect to the fire department connection on your building. Fire hydrants being hidden by snow or other obstructions can also delay firefighters' response to your building. Something else is when we're planning drills, it is important not to have it at a predictable frequency because the nature of fire itself is it's unpredictable and employees need to be ready for this irregularity. Finally, the fire prevention education, some organizations communicate a little too frequently. When it's talked about too often, it becomes noise and employees are going to tune that out. But also on the other end of the spectrum, when it's not talked about enough, you can't accomplish your safety and prevention goals. So finding a middle ground for that is key. Communicating too much can become noise, but you also still want to communicate. It probably is a little bit different based on the industry and the setting. Clearly, if you're working around a lot of things that could catch on fire, maybe you're practicing once a week or once a month, whereas it may be someone working in a an office maybe twice a year or something. And I'm not recommending those Cadences, I'm just saying you need to think about your environment. Absolutely. Well, generally speaking, just in your experience, what organizations or industries tend to be the most successful at fire prevention and safety? So I like to look at this as the organizations that are usually the most successful usually have the most to lose, right? They're ones with a little bit more hazard, ones with a little bit more consequence to their actions or to their inactions. These are typically industries that have a lot more enforcement as well, as well as reinforcement. So this includes organizations like hospitals or hazardous chemical plants and things like that. So we need individuals who are responsible for making sure drills happen and they need to do so. And they often have oversight to make sure that that gets done. Other than that, your maintenance, your inspections, your testing frequencies, things like keeping your stairwells clear, all these small details really add up in an emergency and are important to pay attention to. Yeah, that's really interesting. Being here in Texas, we face a lot of hurricanes and the way we manage to them is to think, okay, the meteorologists are saying it's going to be a cat three. So we plan for it being a cat four. They say it's a cat four. We plan for it being a cat five. So I think you could do something similar here with fire. If you're just in a regular office setting, the odds of it happening are really low. Pretend like you're in a little bit more of a hazardous environment. Maybe just up your practice just a one notch and you'll probably get a better outcome if something does happen. Absolutely. And you could always look to the fire and emergency management systems that are used for things like healthcare facilities or hazardous materials factories because they might have some things that you can take away from and say, oh, that's a good practice. Let me borrow from that, even if it's not necessarily required by law in your office. Yeah, that's right. Don't don't just manage to the law because that's like the minimum standard. But to your point, don't go overboard because people will just stop paying attention. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a fine line there. And do you recommend that organizations appoint an internal fire safety officer? Absolutely. There should be a fire safety officer. But just like you mentioned, fire isn't the only hazard that buildings and offices are going to face. 
So we recommend actually the formation of an emergency management committee. On there, you have a fire safety officer. And then that committee should include representatives from different departments in your organization, as well as senior management, because senior management buy-in is huge. If they're not supporting your emergency management committee, then it's going to be really hard for them to get things done. These committees should conduct things like something we call a hazard vulnerability analysis. This is just looks at all your potential emergencies that might occur, whether they be natural hazards, technology hazards, human-caused hazards, or whatever they are. Uh, We want to look at them and look at the consequences that they have, as well as the likelihood. So as you mentioned, hurricane, right? So the severity could be quite large. And honestly, the likelihood is also there. So we might prioritize that over something that might have less of a likelihood or less of a severity. So trying to prioritize those should be the work of your committee. And then trying to mitigate or lessen the damage each one of those events could have prioritizing the most extreme ones first that are likely to happen. And this sounds like scary and burdensome and a lot of work to do to do this. And maybe only big organizations would undertake this task. But I would say that any organization that has two people or more should probably be thinking about this. Obviously, a lot less the smaller the organization, but it's appropriate for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, the size of the organization, while it does play a little bit into, again, how many people you need to manage, are there different shifts we need to make sure everyone's practicing their drills? Unfortunately, these big hazardous events don't discriminate between big and small organizations. That's a fantastic point. What I'm curious about, is there anything new about fire safety that may surprise organizations? Something that's relatively new is electronically activated sprinklers, which these are sprinklers that instead of just having a glass bulb in them that activates by heat, expands the fluid in the bulb, breaks it, and water starts flowing through. These are electronically activated, so it's going to hook up to your fire alarm system as well. It's going to be a little bit smarter. It's going to be a little bit less prone to accidental discharge and things like that, but also they're more expensive currently. So again, eventually they might come down in price, but something else is the fact that we're seeing a lot more batteries everywhere. So these new technologies, which really are just 10-year-old technologies that are being perfected, are showing up everywhere and creating a little bit more of a fire hazard. So for example, if you have a parking garage, maybe you're going to start to see a lot more electric vehicles in that parking garage, which is going to increase the hazard. And then that might make you go back to your emergency plan and say, does this change anything? Do we now have to say, okay, people shouldn't try to egress through the uh, parking garage as part of our emergency plan, which they shouldn't. But those are kind of some of the new things on the horizon. Again, Trying to combat battery fires is something that's definitely been top of mind for NFPA over the past couple of years. That's a fantastic reminder to our listeners that if it's for fire safety or anything else, whatever you put in place last week, last month, last year, last decade, you have to constantly revisit it because new things pop up and you have to take them into consideration, like all those battery-operated cars. Absolutely. Change management is a huge thing in fire and life safety, making sure that all right, well, we developed our plan, we have everything in place, but everything's changing constantly. We want to stay current with the newest technology. And while that might provide a lot of efficiencies, it might also provide some unknown hazards or known hazards. That's fantastic. Well, I know we just barely scratched the surface on all this today, and there's so many more resources that you guys have that small and large organizations can take advantage of. So can you talk maybe high level? What are the top one, two, or three resources that the NFPA offers that someone could take advantage of immediately? So I think the first thing is just 
NFPA has a lot of information and knowledge on our website. We have these in the form of blogs. We have them in fact sheets. We have them in as digestible as you want, small half page paragraphs of information that you can get a lot of information out of, or we have thick white papers you can look at to try to make your emergency management plan for a bigger organization. So we do have a ton of resources. I just recommend checking out our website, nfpa.org. Everything's on there. Check it out. You can download a ton of it. You can view all this information and research that we have. It's just too much to go over right now. There's a lot there. Yeah, there is a lot. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show and all the incredible work that you and the NFPA do to keep people safe. Absolutely, Peter. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Fantastic. Well, you already mentioned the website, but are there other places people can go to learn more about Fire Prevention Week and the NFPA in general? So this year's Fire Prevention Week theme is Fire Won't Wait, Plan Your Escape. Our website is www.firepreventionweek.org. Well, thanks very much, Brian. And thank you all for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. Please subscribe and follow the show if you haven't done so already. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.